Section 41 of Canada, The Empire of the North. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C. Canada, The Empire of the North by Agnes C. Lott from 1812 to 1846 part one when sir alexander mackenzie the discoverer went home to retire on an estate in scotland he found the young nobleman and philanthropist lord selkirk keenly interested in accounts of vast new unpeopled lands which lay beyond the great lakes a change in the system of farming which dispossessed small farmers to turn the tenantries into sheep-runs, had caused terrible poverty in Scotland at this period. Here in Scotland were people starving for want of land. There in America were lands idle for lack of people. Selkirk had already sent out some colonists to the Lake of St. Clair region of Ontario and to Prince Edward Island. But what he heard from Mackenzie turned his attention to the new empire of the prairie. Then in Montreal, where he had been dined and wined by the Northwest Company's Beaver Club, he had heard still more of this vast new land, of its wealth of furs, of its untimbered fields, where man had but to put in the plowshare to sow his crop. The one great obstruction to settlement there would be the claims of the Hudson's Bay Company to exclusive monopoly of the country. But as Selkirk listened to the descriptions of the Red River Valley given by Colin Robertson, who had been dismissed by the Nor'westers, he thought he saw a way of overcoming all difficulties which the fur traders could put in the way of settlement. Owing to competition, Hudson's Bay stock had fallen from 250 to 50 pounds sterling a share. On returning to Scotland, Lord Selkirk had begun buying up Hudson's Bay stock in the market, along with Sir Alexander Mackenzie. But when Mackenzie learned that Selkirk's object was colonization first, profit second, he broke in violent anger from the partnership in speculation and besought William McGillicovey to go on the open market and buy against Selkirk to defeat the plans for settlement. What with shares owned by his wife's family of Colville Wedderburns and those he had himself purchased, Selkirk now owned a controlling interest in the Hudson's Bay Company. Early in 1811 the company deeds to Lord Selkirk the country of Red River Valley, exceeding in area the British Isles and extending, though the ignorance of its donors, far south into American territory. Colin Robertson, the former Nor'wester, who first interested Selkirk in Red River, has meanwhile been gathering together a party of colonists. Miles MacDonnell, retired from the Glengarry Regiment, has been appointed by Selkirk governor of the new colony. What of the Nor'westers while these projects went forward? Writes McGillicurry from London, 
where he has been stirring up enmity to Selkirk's project. Selkirk must be driven to abandon his project at any cost, for his colony would prove utterly destructive of our fur trade. How he purposed doing this will be seen. Write Selkirk to the governor of his colony, Miles MacDonnell. The Northwest Company must be compelled to quit my lands. If they refuse, they must be treated as poachers. Selkirk believed that the Hudson's Bay Company charter to the great Northwest was legal and valid. He believed that the vast territory granted to him was legally his own as much as his parks in Scotland. He believed that he possessed the same right to expel intruders on this territory as to drive poachers from his own Scotch parks. It was a spirit of feudalism. As for the Nor'westers, let us look at their rights. They disputed that the charter of the Hudson's Bay Company applied beyond the bounds of Hudson's Bay. Even if it did so aptly, they pointed out that by the terms of the charter it applied only to lands not possessed by any other Christian power. And who would dispute that French fur traders and Nor'westers, as their successors, had ascended the streams of the interior long before the Hudson's Bay men. It was the spirit of democracy. It needed no prophet to foresee when these two sets of claims came together there would be a violent clash. It is evening in the little harbor of Stornoway, off the Hebrides, north of Scotland, July 25, 1811. Waning midsummer has begun to shorten the long days, and lying at anchor in the twilight a few yards offshore are the three Hudson's Bay Company boats, outward bound. For a week the quiet little fishing hamlet has been in turmoil, for Governor Miles MacDonnell and Colin Robertson have ordered the Selkirk settlers here, 129 of them, 70 farmers, 59 clerks, to join the Hudson's Bay boats as they swing out westward on their far cruise to the north, and the atmosphere has literally been on fire with vexations created by spies of the Northwest Company. In the first place, as the settlers wait for the ships coming up from London, troublemakers pass from group to group, scattering a miserable little sheet called the Highlander, warning the deluded people against going to a polar land of Indian hostels. Besides, dark hints are uttered that the settlers are not wanted for calmness at all, but for armed battalions to fight the Nor'westers for the Hudson's Bay Company, in proof whereof the prophets of evil point ominously to the cannon and munitions of war on board the three old fur boats. Then there is too much whiskey afloat in Stornoway that week. Settlers are taken ashore and farewelled and farewelled and farewelled till unable to find their way down to the rowboats, and then they are easily frightened into abandoning the risky venture altogether. On the settlers who have come as clerks to the company governor, MacDonnell, 
can keep a strong hand for they have been paid their wages in advance and are seized if they attempt to desert then the excise officer here is a friend of the nor'westers and he creates endless trouble rowing round and round the boats bawling bawling out to know if all who are barking are going of their own free will till the ship's hands looking over decks become so exasperated they heave a cannonball over rails which goes splash through the bottom of the harbor officer's rowboat and sends him cursing ashore to dispatch a challenge for a duel to governor macdonnell macdonnell sees plainly that if he is to have any calmness left he must sail at once anchors up and sails out at eleven that night the ships glide from shore so unexpectedly that one faint heart desperately resolved on flight has to jump overboard and swim ashore while two other settlers who have been lingering over farewells must be rowed across harbor by colin robertson to catch the departing ships then robertson is back on the wharf trumpeting a last cheer through his funneled hands the highlanders on decks lean over the vessel railings waving their bonnets the glasgow and dublin lads indentured as clerks give a last huzza and the selkirk settlers are off for their promised land as long ago cartier's first colonists to the st lawrence had their mettle tested by tempestuous weather and pioneer hardships so now the first colonists to the great northwest must meet the challenge that fate throws down to all who leave the beaten path though the season was late the weather was extraordinarily stormy sixty-one days the passage lasted the tubby old fur ships lying waterlogged rolling to the angry sea macdonald was furious that the colonists had been risked on such unseaworthy craft but those old fur ship captains with fifty years ice battling to their credit probably knew their business better than macdonald the fur ships had not been built for speed and comfort but for cargoes and safety and when storms came they simply lowered sails turned tails to the wind and rolled till the gale had passed to the prolonged woe of the highland landsmen for for the first time suffered seasick pains then when governor macdonnell attempted drills to pass the time he made the discovery that the setious talk had gone the rounds of the deck the hudson's bay had no right to this country the nor'westers owned that country the hudson's bay couldn't compel any man to drill and fight selkirk could not give clear deed to their lands and much more to that same effect all of which proved that some nor'wester agent in disguise had been busy on board september twenty fourth amid falling snow and biting frost the ships anchored at five fathoms hole off york factory port nelson the selkirk settlers had been sixty-one days on board and they were still a year away from their promised land champlain's colonists of acadia and quebec had come to anchorage on a land 
set like a jewel among silver waters and grain hills but the selkirk settlers have as yet seen only rocks barren of verdure as a billiard ball vales amidst the doomed hills of hudson straits dank with muskeg and silent as the very realms of death itself but for the flacker of wild fowl the roaring of the floundering walrus herds or the lonely tinkling of mountain streams running from the ice fields to the mossy valleys bordering the northern sea it needed a robust hope or the blind faith of an almost religious zeal to penetrate the future and see beyond the sterile shores of the promised land where homes were to be built and plenty to abound if pioneer struggles leave a something in the blood of the race that makes for national strength and permanency the difference between the home finding of the west and the home finding of the east is worth noting there were of course no preparations for the colonists at york fort for the factor could not know they were coming or anything of selkirk's plans till the annual ships arrived on the chance of finding better hunting farther from the fort macdonald withdrew his people from the hayes river north across the marsh to a sheltered bank on the river nelson winter had set in early a whopping blizzard met the pilgrims as they marched along an indian trail through the bushwood there is a legend of miles macdonald the governor becoming benighted between york fort and nelson river and losing his way in the storm according to the story he beat about the brushwood for twenty-four hours before he regained his bearings rude huts of rough timber and thatch roof with logs extemporized for berths and benches were knocked up for wintering quarters on nelson river and the next nine months were passed hunting deer for store of provisions and building flatboats to ascend the interior all winter a mutinous spirit was at work among the young clerks which macdonald no doubt ascribed to the machinations of nor'westers but the chief factor quickly quelled mutiny by cutting off supplies and all hands were ready to proceed when the fur brigades set out for the interior on the twenty first of june eighteen twelve up hayes river up the whole length of winnipeg lake then in august the flatboats are ascending the muddy current of red river through what is now manitoba and for the first time the people see their promised land high banks fringed with maple and oak line the river at what is now selkirk then the cliffs lower and through the woods are broken gleams of the rolling prairie intersected by ravines stretching far as an eye can see where sky and earth meet from the lateness of the season one can guess that the river was low at the boulder reach known as st andrew's rapids and that while the boats were tracked upstream the people would disembark and walk along the indian trails of the west bank there was no fort garry near the rapids as a few years later 
buffalo skin teepees alone broke the endless sweep of russet prairie and sky clear swimming blue as the purest lake then the people are back aboard laboring hard as the oar now for they know they are nearing the end of their long pilgrimage the river banks rise higher then they drop gradually to the flats now known as point douglas another bend in the sinuous red current looping and curving and circling fantastically through the prairie and the selkirk settlers are in full view of the old cree graveyard bodies swathed in skins on scaffolding down at the junction of the assiniboine hard by they see the towered bastions of the northwest company's post fort gibraltar somewhere between what are known today as broadway bridge and point douglas the selkirk settlers land on the west side chief Peguis and his Cree warriors ride wonderingly among the white-faced newcomers, marveling at men who have crossed the great waters to dig gardens and work land. The barracks knocked up hastily is known after Selkirk's family name as Fort Douglas, but the store of deer meat has been exhausted, and the colonists are on the verge of a second winter. They at once join the Plain Rangers, or Boy Brulees, burnt wood runners, half-breed descendants of French and Norwest fur traders, who have been retainers of the Montreal Company. With them the Selkirk settlers proceed south to Pembina and the boundary to hunt buffalo. No instructions had yet come to Red River of the Northwest Company's hostility to the colony and the lonely scotch clerks of fort gibraltar were glad to welcome men who spoke their own highland tongue volumes might be written of this the colonists first year in the promised land how the rude plain rangers conveyed them to the buffalo hunt in their creaking red river carts carts made entirely of wood hub tire axle and all or else on loaned ponies how when storm came the white settlers were welcomed to the huts and skin tents of the french half-breeds given food and buffalo blankets how many a young highlander came to grief in the wild stampede of the first buffalo hunt how when the hunters returned to fort gibraltar winnipeg on red river with store enough of pemmican for all the fur posts of the nor'westers many a wild happy winter night was passed dancing mad indian jigs to the piping of the highland piper and the crazy scraping of some frenchman's fiddle how when morning came in a gray dawn of smoking frost mist a long line of the colonists could be seen winding along the ice of red river home to fort douglas piper green or hector mclean leading the way still prancing and blowing a proud national air how when the spring opened ten acre plots were assigned to each settler close to the fort at what were known as the colony buildings and one hundred acre farms farther down the river all this and more 
are part of the story of the coming of the first colonists to the great northwest the very autumn that the first settlers had reached red river in eighteen twelve more colonists had arrived on the boats at hudson bay these did not reach red river till october eighteen twelve and in the spring of eighteen thirteen by eighteen thirteen and on till eighteen seventeen more colonists yearly came the story of each year with its plot and counterplot i have told elsewhere spite of nor'westers threats spite of the fact there would be no market for the colonists when they had succeeded in transforming wilderness prairie into farms selkirk's mad dream of empire seemed to be succeeding the cardinal mistake in the contest between hudson's bay company and nor'westers between feudalism and democracy was now committed by the governor of the colony miles macdonnell the year eighteen thirteen had proved poor for the buffalo hunters large numbers of colonists were coming and provisions were likely to be scarce also note it well while the war of eighteen twelve did not cut off supplies through hudson bay to the english company it did threaten access to the west by the great lakes and cut off all supplies by way of detroit and lake huron for the nor'westers was macdonnell scoring a point against the nor'westers when they were at a disadvantage who can answer selkirk had ordered him to expel the nor'westers from his lands and if the violent contest had not begun in this way it was bound to come in another what macdonnell did was issue a proclamation in january of eighteen fourteen forbidding taking provisions from selkirk's territory of assiniboia it practically meant that the plain rangers must not hunt buffalo in the limits of modern manitoba and must not sell supplies to the nor'westers it also meant that all the upper posts of the nor'westers the fur posts of athabasca and british columbia which depended on premakin for food would be without adequate provisions the plain rangers were enraged beyond words and doubly enraged when some hudson's bay men be began seizing buffalo meat at pembina river which was beyond the limits of selkirk's territory writes peter fiddler one of the hudson's bay factors if macdonnell only perseveres he will starve the nor'westers out one can guess the anger in the annual meeting of the nor'westers at fort william in july of eighteen fourteen like generals on field of war they laid out their campaign duncan cameron a united empire loyalist officer of the eighteen twelve war is to don his red regimentals and proceed to red river where his knowledge of the gaelic tongue may be trusted to win over selkirk settlers nothing but the complete downfall of the colony will satisfy some wrote one of the fiery nor'westers to a brother officer such was the mood of the nor'westers when they came back from their annual meeting 
on Lake Superior to Red River, and MacDonald fanned this mood to dangerous fury by threatening to burn the Nor'westers' forts to the ground unless they moved from Selkirk's territory. For the present, Duncan Cameron contends himself with a striking up a warm friendship with the Highlanders of the settlement and offering to transport two hundred of them free of cost to eastern Canada. MacDonald seizes still more provisions from northwest forts. Cameron, the Nor'wester, comes back from the annual meeting of 1815, still more bellicose. He carries the warrant to arrest Governor Miles MacDowell for the seizure of those provisions. MacDowell, safe behind the palisades of Fort Douglas, laughs the warrant to scorn, but it is another matter when the plain rangers ride across the prairie from Fort Gibraltar armed and pour such hot shot into Fort Douglas that the colonists, frenzied with fear, huddle to the fort for shelter. To ensure the safety of the colonists, MacDonnell surrenders to the Nor'westers and is sent to eastern Canada for a trial which never takes place. No sooner has Governor MacDowell been expelled than Cuthbert Grant, warden of the Plain Rangers, rides over to the colony and warns the colonists to flee for their lives. From Indians enraged at these land workers spoiling the hunting fields. What the Indians thought of this defense of their rights is not stated. They were silent and unacting witnesses of the unedifying spectacle of white men ready to fly at each other's throats. It was too late for the colonists to reach Hudson Bay in time for the annual ships of 1815. So the houseless people dispersed amid the forests of Lake Winnipeg, where they could be certain of at least fish for food. End of section 41. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C.